Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, March 8th, 2019. On today's episode, we are going to dive into a full-on spoiler discussion of Captain Marvel. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer, y Trend Bowie. Hey, everyone. And today we have a special guest with us. We have uh, the host of Marvel Studios News and Superhero News, Sean Gerber. How is it going, Sean? Going great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, uh, you know, when we were about to do this podcast, I was like, if we can get anybody on to talk Marvel, it has to be Sean. Sean is like the, the biggest uh, Marvel Studios nerd I know. And I say that in the most respectful way possible. It's, it can only be meant respectfully. There's no way I would ever interpret that as an insult. <laughs> so. yeah. um, okay, so it should be said before we get a dive into this that uh, this isn't going to be a review podcast. This is us talking about the Marvel, uh, the Captain Marvel spoilers. So if you have not seen Captain Marvel, there really is no reason for you to listen to this podcast unless you just want to spoil everything for yourself. But, I mean, if you want to do that, fine. But I would recommend against that. So I'd say pause this and you know go see the movie and then come back to this. Uh, but bef- uh, so you have been warned. Sp- massive spoilers for Captain Marvel coming up. Um, briefly, uh, HD, what did you think of the movie? Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought that it did well inside the the formula, the Marvel formula that it was kind of bound to but um i think that it kind of excelled beyond that because of the great performances from brie larson samuel L. jackson who had such a great buddy comedy routine to yeah. them that i want to see more of them and um of course and ben mendelson of course who is uh just so good and doing something just uh, beyond what everyone else is doing in that cast but i really enjoyed it for the the performances of the cast and uh, also i enjoyed the sort of um the more dreamy sort of flashback structure that they have with this, which I thought was an interesting um, little twist on the origin story. Oh, for sure. And I loved Lashonda Lynch uh, and her character and what that brought to the heart of the story. I agree with you with the the buddy cop story. I feel like that, like it took a little while for this film to get started, but once it hits that, uh, I was in. Um, Brad, 
your thoughts on Captain Marvel? Yeah, I'm pretty much right there with HT. Uh, I I like that they mixed up the formula for telling an origin story a little bit so that it felt more a little bit more refreshing and engaging, uh, breaking it up like that and giving us kind of pieces of Carol Danvers' history instead of giving us a, a straightforward uh, chronological origin story with a nice touch, um, you know, tying her in with the rest of the, the Marvel cosmic universe and uh, also having the, the Tesseract be part of it already made her feel like a big part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe without having to, like, uh, really push her into it before she has a you know a, a decent sized role in Avengers Endgame uh, was really cool and I think everyone's great in it you know uh, Brie Larson's outstanding Samuel Jackson feels like he was transported from the past to do this role uh, and Ben Mendelsohn is hilarious and a scene stealer uh, as Talos the the leader of the scrolls so yeah I, I really enjoyed this uh, this one a lot oh, Mendelsohn's so good. Um... By the way, last night I updated my Marvel Cinematic Universe movies ranking, which I have on my letterbox. I'll link it in the show notes. But including the short films, there's been 28 releases that are, you know, technically canon in the MCU. And for me, Captain Marvel was number 15. So kind of almost dead in the middle there. Um, yeah, I'd say that's about right. I feel like it's a good like middle tier um, Marvel movie. Yeah, Sean, what do you think? How does Captain Marvel stand in in the chronicle of the MCU? I love Captain Marvel. I think it's great. I think this movie runs deep thematically on a lot of different levels. It's not a review show, so I won't get into all of that. But <laughs> some of it's going to naturally come up in the conversation. Yeah. But I, I think this is a really really great movie. I think it actually breaks from. I don't I've always thought the more the Marvel formula thing was overstated anyway. But in this case, I think it actually breaks from formula even more so than a lot of other MCU films. This one feels more like just wonderfully weird classic science fiction to me. So uh, but as far as where it stands in the pantheon of the MCU, it's above the middle of the pack. I don't know that it's up in the the top tier of like my top five or whatever for the Marvel Studios uh, or for the Marvel Cinematic, Cinematic Universe, but it wouldn't be very far outside of it. So I have this one a lot closer, probably a lot closer to the top than maybe you guys do. Yeah. You know, I need to ask this, Sean. What, what is the number one Marvel Cinematic Universe film on your list? I've honestly got Black <laughs> Panther and Avengers Infinity War deadlocked right now. Oh, really? Um, yeah, Black Panther has by far and away the best standalone that Marvel's done, and Infinity War the best of the team-ups, and it really is hard to compare the two because they have to do such completely different things. Yeah. Um, and it's not just being a prisoner of the moment. I mean, I sat with both of those films many, many times <laughs> in the theater and many, <laughs> many times since. Uh, but yeah, I think Black Panther and Infinity War, they top the list right now. You know, I have to ask, HT, what is your favorite MCU movie? Oh, Black Panther. Black Panther. I think it yeah, does so much with what it has. And um, not more than just being a timely film. It has it just juggles all of these different um, elements in a way that feels very effortless. And Brad, what is your your top favorite? Oh, mine's Guardians of the Galaxy. And that's objectively the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> I am with you. So I agree there. Um... Mine was Guardians for a long time. So... I, I guess I was right for a period of time in my life. About the Sorry, guys. I, I do feel like you can't dispute this, HD uh, and Sean, that Guardians, I think, is the most rewatchable of the films. Um, I've got Guardians and the first Avengers. That's that's another one where it's tough for me. Uh, tough for but you. yeah, I probably rewatched the two of them about the same amount of times or Avengers maybe has a slight lead only because it was out two years before. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, jump into spoilers now. Um, let's start off with Stan Lee. Uh, how great was this this tribute that the, uh, the the movie opens with, like the Marvel Studios logo, but it's all Stan all the time. And it's not just all of his cameos. It's also like behind-the-scenes footage that we've never mm -hmm. seen. Um, yeah, it's the greatest thing ever. Just Just the best. Yeah, no, I uh, I almost teared up <laughs> when that came up to the screen. Which yeah, is, uh, like this movie hasn't even done anything yet, and I'm <laughs> and I am spent. <laughs> um, you know, we should talk about his cameo though. That that that's uh, this is probably one of his most interesting Marvel Cinematic Universe cameos because it's the first time that we know of that he's playing himself, right? No, no, no. I thought that was that was awesome, and I, I didn't completely realize it at first like i because like, i saw the script and i made the connection and i was like oh wait yeah duh it's 1995 that's that's like the, it was just hilarious it was just a really clever way of having stan lee in there and yeah you're i think that you're right it is the first time 
uh, Stanley is playing himself uh, because he was obviously learning his lines to play himself in uh, Kevin Smith's Mallrats during that time. And yeah, so it's a it, it's a cool cool little cameo for sure, and it's a it's a nice send off um, in that regards. At least if this is the last cameo, I think maybe he has one in Avengers Endgame still, but it, it works so well in this movie. Yeah, I liked how understated it was um, and that it has layers like the mall rats sort of is like kind of fun film trivia thing. And like having Brie Larson have that tiny smile at the end was really nice as well. Yeah. Um, is it really him the whole time, though? I don't think it's him. Yeah, I, I think that. Yeah, I, there's, I a, there, there's a double that's holding the mall rat script to yes, his face. Yeah, yeah, I thought that, too, because I thought that it looked kind of odd, even though you, you do see his face. But, yeah, I, I think that they had to to fudge that a little bit. Yep. And I don't know if it's because I mean, I think he would have shot for Captain Marvel, but they probably added the the mall rats thing. Uh, they oh. probably decided to add that after he passed because that's that's got to be a double. That That's not his oh, really? behind that script. Yeah, I was going to say when I talked to the directors, they said that they wrote that in the script that it was mall rats. So I'm wondering why they would use a double. I, I yeah. do agree there was something it, weird going on there. Yeah, it doesn't look like him. Uh, you know the back of his I'm, head coming out of that screen. I'm wondering if maybe they had to fix something because they did say that they made it a little bit less of a comedic moment. So I wonder if originally his face wasn't hidden, maybe. and so and so that's why they had they had to redo it so that they could have that little moment where like they reveal that it's Stanley and then she gives mm. him that smirk. So, but yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean they definitely had him on the train. I mean you can see that, but yeah, I think they 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 must have had had to fix something after the fact. And Sean, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought previously they said that they shot the Stanley cameos during Infinity War and Endgame, like they shot like a bunch of them together. But this was shot in L.A. I mean, uh, Captain Marvel was shot in L.A., so I'm assuming they could have just had him out because he lives in L.A. They probably, yeah, they probably did for that one, um, and then obviously couldn't have him again if they needed to fix something. And, and yeah. I don't know, maybe the point where they decided they needed to fix something it might have even been before he passed, but he wasn't available to be part of whatever they needed to do but yeah he shot i mean i remember when he shot four at once but i think a lot of those we're at more movies than four now since that happened so captain marvel probably wasn't one of those four yeah i think uh i think infinity war and endgame were among those four and uh you know stanley's appearance in mall rats is one of my favorite i mean it probably is my favorite of all of his appearances i i think a lot of people call that a cameo but i feel like it's way more than a cameo he's like you know, a supporting role in that movie. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about the scroll twist. This is the thing I think that is surprising most people. Uh, and it's something I really loved about this film because, you know, you go in expecting Mendelssohn to play the big bad as he always does. And you go in, you know, expecting the scrolls to be the evil green bad guys. But it turns out they were the good guys after all. Um, what did you guys think? I really love this twist. Um, I was It was so refreshing to see Ben Mendelsohn not playing a villain, like you said. And he makes the most out of this role that just kind of evolves throughout the film. Like, you, he plays Sinister well, but then he also uh, lends a lot of heart to that character towards the end. And you're like, wow, he has a lot of range. Hopefully he'll be able to stop being cast in villain roles. <laughs> and um, I think that this was a nice um, subversion, too, because... Uh, the scrolls in the comics have been depicted as uh, bads, big bads in the past. And um, I've always been a little bit confused as to how the Kree have played a role in the MCU in the past anyways, because they've been de depicted mostly as the villains. So I was wondering how they would sort of work that way, work that into Captain Marvel in which um, at the beginning, Carol believes that she is Kree. So um, I thought this was a good, good way of doing it. Also kind of, working in a nice little anti-war message, too, to the film. Yeah. What, what does the scroll twist mean for the possibility of us actually getting to Secret Invasion? Sean, do you have any ideas? I think it means it's not happening. I mean, I, I think <laughs> this, this is the way the Marvel Cinematic Universe has chosen to go about it. Now, just because these scrolls were okay doesn't mean there aren't any bad scrolls out there, but I think the the subversion that HT was talking about, it's that idea that, hey, if anybody's trying to paint an entire race as terrorists or whatever else, they're, prob they're probably the ones who are the bad guys, not the guys being painted as terrorists based on no information. Uh, so and, that, and this is where I think Captain Marvel just goes into full-blown 
classic science fiction allegory. I think there's a lot in play here, and I think it has a lot to do with a lot of the rhetoric that's that's been spewed over the past few years. I don't think it's unintentional. I don't think it's coincidental that Minerva calls Earth or C-53 a shithole. And when you match that up with talking with repeated phrasing about border security in this, uh, talks about about terrorists protecting the borders, all those kinds of things, uh, I don't think it's an accident. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was a line that was added in additional photography that Talos says thousands of us have been scattered across the galaxy, talking uh, the idea of family separation. Like, I think... Captain Marvel is very much about these things. And if you follow Ryan Fleck on Twitter, you know he cares very much about those things. So this is where I think Captain Marvel runs so much deeper. And to me, it's worth it. It's better storytelling. Rather than to just paint the scrolls into this corner of being bad guys like they are in the comics, I think this shift actually works. And it's supported by the comics because not all the scrolls are ultimately are bad in the comics. That's how they are when they're introduced. But that notion of just introducing a race of people and saying they're all bad is obviously an outdated concept and can actually be a harmful concept. And I love the way Captain Marvel deals with it, even if it means that we don't get secret invasion. The story's not that good anyway, so I'm already over it. Well, I mean, they've always been taking the good the good concept of the story and not actually the story itself, like, you know, as evidenced with, uh, you know, Civil War, I think is probably the best example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did ask Kevin Feige... Uh, this question about does this mean that we're not heading towards a secret invasion? And he said that he didn't think that mean, means that at all. I'm going to pu- publish this uh, interview next week. But he basically think he basically said what you said, that the scrolls are um, uh, diverse and multi-layered as any intelligent life form and that they're certainly bad versions of the scrolls mm-hmm. and uh that could eventually, you know, could ev- we could eventually go there. You know, it's it's the typical uh, Kevin Feige deflector shield of yeah exactly yeah him saying nothing something means anything Pe- nothing means anything Peter <laughs> yeah um, let's talk about the Marvel twist which I thought I thought was pretty interesting because going into this film everybody I think assumed that Jude Law was playing that that character who is mm-hmm. traditionally kind of like a mentor role is that correct Sean yeah I mean it's I think yeah that's pretty much Marvel was I mean. In the comic books, Carol was kind of the Air Force liaison with the Avengers and also Marvel. But it's really funny in, in Captain Marvel in Carol Danvers' origin, like she's barely in it when that explosion happens. It's it's really more about Marvel and uh, and Yon Rog. So, uh, but anyway, that's kind of how it was in the comics. But yeah, that relationship between Marvel and Carol was mentor slash mentee. But it wasn't even really. Originally, it wasn't even that strong of a relationship. It became stronger after she became Miss Marvel in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of loved uh, when we were having the sequences with uh, Supreme Intelligence, how badass uh, Annette Penning was <laughs> in those sequences. She could, she, she seemed like she was having a lot of fun playing it up. Um, yeah, I love her dancing in the leather jacket. That was just the best. Yeah. I'm wondering if that came about just it must have come about organically on set of her like just Probably. like yeah um uh I guess let's move on to let's talk about Monica because a lot of people I think seeing this film probably don't know that Monica Rambo uh is kind of an important figure in the future of the MCU and I'm talking about uh Maria's daughter who we see interacting with uh, Carol Danvers uh Basically, she, you know, uh, Captain Trouble, I think she calls her, right? Or Lieutenant, Lieutenant Trouble. L- Lieutenant Trouble. Um, how how does she, like, what, what should we be expecting for her in the future of the MCU, Sean? Well, she becomes a full-blown superhero. She actually was Captain Marvel before Carol was Captain Marvel in the comics uh, because Carol was still, I think, Ms. Marvel at that point. Carol's been a lot of things, but so has Monica Rambeau. And then... Uh, one of her other super, I, one of her other superhero identities was Photon, which is Maria Rambo's call sign on her jet uh, in the movie. And then I think right now she's Spectrum. I don't know, but she becomes a superhero, like full blown cosmic powered superhero in the comic books. I don't know if they'll go that route because it might be a little too coincidental to have her have a, a very similar power set to Carol. So maybe the idea she talked, I mean, they kind of tease a future for her in the film. Like I can meet you out in space. I'll build myself a ship. So I don't know if maybe she's going to be more of a tech genius in the MCU or if she might get superpowers, but we know they also want to introduce Kamala Khan 
And so that's going to have to be another incident where a young girl gets superpowers. So I don't know how many of those things they want to have happening all in this one franchise, but there should certainly be a future for Monica Rambeau. And I actually hope that DeWanda Weiss gets to play her because DeWanda Weiss was originally supposed to be playing Maria Rambeau in this film, and she had to drop out because of scheduling with her Netflix show, She's Got to Have It. So that's when Lashana Lynch came in. So I hope now when it comes back around for an adult Monica set in the more uh, the present day MCU, I hope DeWanda Weiss comes back into the picture for it. Oh, that'd be interesting. I, I was saying in our Slack channel er- earlier today that the only thing that disappoints me about them doing a sequel to Captain Marvel is I think they're probably going to jump back to like the, the current timeline after Endgame. And we can talk about that more later, but that disappoints me because one of the things I kind of loved about this movie is I loved the relate, you know, the sisterly mm-hmm. uh, friendship relationship between Carol and, um, uh, wait, not Monica, Marie, Maria. Yeah. Maria. Maria. Um, and also, you know, the, her daughter, Monica. And I feel like, you know, Monica is 11, uh, in, in this, it says that mm-hmm. says so in the credits. So in our current MCU timeline, she's like 35, 36 or something like that. So yeah. if, 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 uh, Carol comes back down to earth, uh, there's a big chance that Maria is probably maybe dead or would not be played by the same actress, I assume, unless they can, you know, uh, do the opposite of the de-aging technology. <laughs> um, well, there's been plenty of makeup for aging yeah. people up, so I think yeah. they can They've probably... done it for Haley Atwell plenty of times for uh, yeah. Yeah. Agent Carter and, um, not Agent Carter, just um, the Captain America movies. Yeah, yeah. but, but I want to see more of her and the kid, and I feel like her and the 36-year-old is not as exciting to me. <laughs> like, no, that's, um, probably, that's probably fair. Uh, in response to your like uh, speculation about Kamala Khan, in Agents of Shield, I wonder if they'll they'll pick this up in uh, the MCU. But they have a whole subplot of the Inhumans mm-hmm. in Agents of Shield, in which they introduce the sort of um, the Cree, um, like you know, genetics through this spread widespread. Um, I can't remember what it was. It was like crystals that were swallowed by yeah. fish. Yeah, and then like eat fish pills. Yeah, but that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, the so a lot of people with powers are popping up around the world, and I don't know if they'll pick that up in the MCU, but uh, that's a possibility. Inhuman show. Yeah, (laughs) I think that I think that bridge got burned. So I I think Marvel Studios when they because yeah, Kamala Khan, you're right. She's an Inhuman in the comic books. That's how she gets her powers. Uh, It's weird. It's in the big event, uh, Infinity from 2013. There's a fight between Black Bolt, the leader of Inhumans, and Thanos. And spoiler alert, he blow, he uh, blows up a Terrigen bomb that sends this cloud all over the world. Uh, it was back when Marvel Comics was trying to use Inhumans to replace mutants. And now that's dead because Marvel Studios is going to have mutants. But uh, Kamala Khan was one of the people affected by that cloud. That was how she got her power. She's an Inhuman. I think they will change the portion of her origin that is an inhuman from Marvel Studios because it's just it's already too cluttered to try and incorporate what they did on Agents of Shield plus what they did on that awful awful show a couple of years ago. <laughs> uh, so that's I think that's burned. So I think and, and who cares? No one saw other... that, Sean. No well, one saw that show. <laughs> well, but I think the other thing with Inhumans is it also kind of it kind of tracks with Eternals. It overlaps with Eternals too much because Eternals is. Experiment is Celestials experimenting on human beings or proto sapiens that becomes Eternals. So now, if you have Kree experimenting on humans and we have Inhumans, and plus we're going to have mutants in there, we're going to have too many different species of all these different things that are all very similar. You know, the result of aliens experimenting on on humans are almost humans. So I feel like that just gets too convoluted and also too redundant across these different things. So I think Inhumans are just kind of going to be on the outs for a while, and so I think Kamala Khan gets a different origin, but. Inhuman powers are still Cree in nature, which Carol's are. So you can still have some other inciting incident that still relate ties it back to the Cree, and I think that's close enough. Or now that that's not, uh, now that the word mutant is allowed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or it will be soon, you could have Kamala Khan be a mutant. You could go either way. Uh, her being inhuman, I don't think is central to her character. There are many other things that are much more important to who she is. Yeah, Let, let's talk about the Tesseract. Uh, Brad put this article up uh, that's going to be on the site. Uh, this afternoon, talking about the end credits and and a bunch of the spoilers, and uh, I know a lot of people. When I was coming out of my screening, a lot of people were kind of confused 
as to how did Lawson get the Tesseract? Because didn't the Tesseract go down with uh, Captain America and in the first Avenger? Uh, so, Brad, explain to us, how is the Tesseract in this movie? Yeah, I mean, it's actually a pretty simple explanation. It's probably hard to remember since, you know, we've had uh, 10 years of movies uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe since then. But uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. actually came into possession of the Tesseract after they uh, around the time they found Steve Rogers in the ocean, because the Tesseract actually fell out of the ship that Steve Rogers was flying uh, and and crashed in the Arctic where he ended up being frozen. And Howard Stark actually ended up finding it on the floor of the ocean. So he's he's had it, and so by association, Shield has had it since he's one of the co-founders of Shield this entire time. So we don't necessarily know all the stuff they've been doing it with this entire time, but we can assume that since Wendy Lawson or Marvell was working on the Pegasus Project, which is part of Shield, that at some point it was handed off to her to either continue the kind of work that Stark was doing, or because she could do something more with it that Stark never could, or, or something like that. So. There's, a, there's decades where what was being done with the Tesseract is unaccounted for, but the fact that the Tesseract was in the possession of S.H.I.E.L.D. makes perfect sense in the timeline of the, the MCU. Yeah, they've literally had it for 50 years in the timeline of the MCU. Howard Stark finds it like right when they're first looking for Steve. Yeah. Because so, it's still, it's Dominic Cooper, Howard Stark, that finds it. Yeah. yeah. And then at that point, it's another 20 years before Nick Fury decides to do some scientific testing on, on the Tesseract. Well, I don't even think that it's it's that because I'm sh- I'm sure that they work on it after uh, mm. pukes it back up, but it's uh, really they're they're working on it, you know, to to create those weapons and everything. So who knows how long it it would take for them to figure that out, uh, since you know Nick Fury is not a scientist or anything like that. Um, and I'm sure the technology in the '90s wasn't necessarily up to snuff for them to be able to do stuff like that, since Wendy Lawson had only just figured out how to create a light speed engine on Earth. Uh, despite you know being from space, so I'm sure it was difficult to do that. But the the Tesseract itself too was uh, essentially dormant during that entire time too, because there's a line in Avengers where the Chitauri said the Tesseract has awakened, and that's how they know where it's at in the Avengers, and they send Loki to go get it. Okay, we you know you mentioned Goose the Cat. We should talk about Goose the Cat, um, who in the comics, by the way, was named Chewy. I talked to the mm-hmm. directors about that. Uh, I'm probably going to play both of these interviews, my interview with the directors and Feige next week on the podcast um, sometime, but you can read it on the site right now. And they basically said that the reason why they changed it was that when the comics came out that, you know, Star Wars was kind of like a nostalgic thing. And now Star Wars is in the now and kind of a big part of pop culture. So they decided to change it to something that was more nostalgic. And this one, you know, obviously Goose fits uh, Top Gun which you know it's on Air Force uh, Air Force Base. So, um, but I guess the, the big question I think a lot of people coming out of this movie, you know, I, I think everybody loves Goose the Cat, but they're wondering what is a forking. So, so, Sean, I know you know out of all of us, you know the most about the Marvel universe. What is a forking? It's exactly what you saw. It's a thing that looks like a cat, but then has gigantic tentacles that come out of its mouth and it can swallow things because inside its body are pocket dimensions. So that's why it won't <laughs> bloat like a snake that just ate something <laughs> like it just has pocket dimensions. It's super weird. It can also like it also lays eggs to reproduce and there can be like lay over 100 of them at a time. Uh, it, it was really interesting to see the the whole idea of the flurkin even in this because that was introduced in comics only five years ago so only so if you go back to when they were scripting this i mean it was only a couple years old at that point it was part of uh, kelly sue DeConnick's run uh, and of course that she was the one who gave the cat the name chewy i actually like the name goose a little bit better i agree with the directors on their choice um, and i was actually happy to hear from your see from your interview that it was their choice and not another situation where Lucasfilm just didn't want a Star Wars reference being in there, like they told Wreck-It Ralph that you can't make fun of Kylo Ren. Uh, so, like, I I was happy that it was the director's choice. But yeah, it, the, there's really not that much more explanation. It wasn't that deep in the comics as far as uh, what the Flurkin was. Uh, the only major difference in the storyline is it was Rocket was the one who identified that it was a Flurkin and not a cat, and Carol had no idea. Uh, and also, the cat was. Carol's cat. It didn't come from Marvel or or any other character. See, I I had assumed when when watching this movie, and I knew nothing about Flurkins from the comics, but I assumed that there was the Flurkin was something that inhabited 
a earthly cat. Like it was something mm-hmm. that went inside the body of like a different creature. It was kind of a uh, what, what do you call that? Like um, an inhabitant of the creature. Um, but when I was talking to Kevin Feige, he basically said, "No, Flurkins look like cats," and that, that that's how they are in the comics as well. I assume. Yeah, that's what they are. So it's it's similar to Rocket, which is why in the comics it was interesting to have Rocket be the one who identified the Flurkin because Rocket is not a raccoon. He's a you know he's a being that looks like an Earth raccoon, but that's not what he is. And Goose slash Chewy, it's the same thing with a Flurkin. You know, another question I've heard a lot of people asking after my screening is why is Goose at this government base roaming around free? You know, what? why is she there? And one, and I actually know the answer to that. that that's because she's actually the pet by Wendy Lawson. When she, mm-hmm. when she died, the, the, the Flurkin, I guess, just roamed free around this, this base. Uh, so there's the answer to that. Um, one question I had is Goose now dead? Because this is this takes place in the mid '90s, and the average life of a cat is 15 years, and it's been you know more than 15 years since the events of this film. Or do flurkins last longer than the the lifespan of cat? Do 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 we know that answer? There is not a definitive answer to that. Chewy is still alive in the comics, although again that was all introduced within the last few years in Marvel Comics canon. So the lifespan of a cat has not elapsed. So the issue hasn't really come up in the comics as far as how long uh, a flurkin would need to live relative to the lifespan of a cat. So I would just presume that it's possible that a flurkin has a much longer lifespan and can still be around. I mean, I would imagine something that has pocket dimensions on the inside maybe doesn't. Uh, maybe he doesn't age at the same or deteriorate at the same uh, rate that a normal cat would. So uh, I would say there's probably a good chance we'll see Goose again. Where has Goose been, though, for the past 20 years is the big question, I think. Oh, I said to Feige, I was like, I want a short film on the Disney Plus streaming service that shows us that Goose the cat was like just off screen for all these major events in the 10 years of the the MCU. Like a Zeppo style yeah, really like, you know, uh, they're having that huge fight in uh, in Avengers Tower and like Goose accidentally knocks something off that like ends up being in the shot of the, you know, something like that. And uh, and Feige laughed and he said that, that um, you know, with the Disney Plus streaming service, stuff like that is something they can explore. So, um, yeah. so he didn't. Well, the other out. thing about the other thing to know about Flirk and Trivia is that they can actually kind of travel through dimensions. So Goose doesn't can get from place to place, in theory, if it's like the comics, doesn't necessarily have to walk from place to place. Uh, could essentially teleport from one spot to another. So it would be pretty easy for Goose to get around and go wherever Goose wants uh, undetected, as we kind of saw where Goose ended up being on the plane that Nick and Carol were on, and they had no idea. Ooh, some new powers that we'll, we'll find out in the sequel. Um, I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of... Um... Nick Fury's eye injury because I, I think this is where Marvel I think is doing a prequel right in you know comparison to like the Star Wars prequels like sure we do get an answer to how Nick Fury got his eye injury but it's in a way that we it's not in a dramatic way it's not a huge mm-hmm. moment it's in a way we least expected it HG do you have any thoughts on on his eye injury yeah the tongue was firmly planted in the cheek when they did this and I actually enjoyed that because I remember yeah, with the build up to Solo, it's like, oh, how does he get his name? And it was something very anticlimactic. But here, there's a lot of um, sort of nods to it. Like throughout the t- throughout the movie, he mm-hmm. keeps like getting injuries near his eye, or people are like, "What's is your eye okay?" <laughs> and uh, when they fi- when it finally happens, it's almost like hilariously anticlimactic in a way that's very um, on brand for Marvel. Yeah, and I also love Nick Fury. Like when Coulson asks him about how you know, mm-hmm. is it true that this happened? And he's like, I can, cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's totally Nick Fury. That's. Yeah. Uh, I think Ben Mendelsohn makes that moment because when he's like, "Oh, it's just a scratch," and Mendelsohn's just no. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that part. That's what makes it for me. And yeah, I, I do like that. It's a little bit silly and a little bit anticlimactic because that is kind of. I mean. Nick Fury is a guy who's had no shortage of epic moments in his life. It doesn't have to be an epic moment where he loses his eye. But I love that it calls back to the Winter Soldier when he says, last time I trusted someone, I lost an eye. Because not long before Goose scratches him, he actually says, I'm going to trust you. Uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't even. Yeah, scratches him. 
Brad, do you have any opinions on the Fury eye injury or even Goose as a whole? No, I, th- I thought the eye injury was was great, especially because of how much of a badass everyone thinks Nick Fury is, and the fact that he, you know the, the most <laughs> the most signature part about his look was just because the Flurkin scratched his eye at, at a random time. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely uh, great, and I I loved Goose. Goose was such a scene stealer. Uh, I'm a cat person in general, so I just love seeing Goose, you know, messing around and uh, just being in, in a lot of different scenes. And the fact that he was even this uh, alien creature that has this huge moment that, you know, the audience was in uproarious laughter when it was his like true form was revealed after uh, fighting the Kree and taking the, the uh, Tesseract in its mouth. So, yeah, I, I hope we get to see more Goose at, at some point. I would love to see him pop up either in another Guardians of the Galaxy movie or uh, in a, a different cosmic Marvel movie at some point. Do, do we think uh, with the end credit scene, do we think that he will just randomly cough up like things from that pocket universe? Like he's just going to be like coughing up hairballs of Kree's for like the next like <laughs> 10 years. Or like, is it that the, the Tesseract just held so much power and he needed to get it out of him? <laughs> I think maybe he chose to give it back to Nick Fury. I think Goose probably has the ability to choose what he coughs up out eye. of a, yeah, what he coughs <laughs> up out of a pocket dimension and what he you know, what he keeps down. We keep going back or and she forth. keeps down. Yeah, we keep going back and forth. Is is Goose a sh- a she or a he? Do we know? It's, oh, it's she. a she. It's oh. a she. Yeah. I, uh, Wendy Lawson says uh, Goose likes you. She doesn't normally take to people. Oh, okay, I didn't. Yeah, I, I must have missed that because I thought I thought Goose was a boy cat, and I assumed then uh, as a boy flirkin. Yeah, um, I think people just go with boy because Goose was a male character, <laughs> and then Chewie was a male character as well. But no, it's uh, female. Yeah, during my interviews, I got corrected a couple times that it's a she or the, that the cat is a she. And although I think some of the cats that actually play Goose, there's like four or five different cats. Some of them are male. So yeah, the main one was named Reggie. So I'm yeah. guessing that was a male cat. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about one of the most controversial parts of this movie. One of the parts that I think a lot of fans are – I've heard a lot of fans don't like, but I kind of like uh, the protective initiative. This is like the thing that uh, that Fury is putting together. It's the – what ends up becoming the Avenger initiative and him – taking that name avenger from the you know i guess the nickname that carol danvers had on her on her um jet there so like, mm-hmm. well, brad do you have any problems with this not really you know it's um it's it does feel like a retcon kind of thing but it also makes sense because uh nick fury doesn't know captain america who is you know, who is dubbed the first avenger in his own movie which is technically still true, uh, you know, since he was the first hero to be on on Earth. Yeah. But the, this is the first time Nick Fury has encountered a superhero, and so to be inspired by, you know, the, the her pilot's call sign, uh, you know, just just kind of makes sense. And it's it's I think that it's a, a totally fine moment, and it really doesn't change, you know, the legacy of, you know, what the Avengers mean or anything like that. So I feel like getting mad about it is is really just unnecessary. <laughs> Yeah, I had no idea people were mad about this. It was something that kind of made sense to me because, yeah, this is Nick Fury's first encounter face-to-face with the hero. And I like that that kind of leads to him wanting to to gather a, a whole team of superheroes. So it makes sense to me, and I don't know why people are mad, and people should stop being mad. I, I just don't – I think they just don't like the retconning of stuff. Yeah. Um I think if Captain America, the first Avenger, wasn't named that, I don't think they would have a problem. It's also weird that the the word Avenger means, you know, a person who extracts punishment or inflicts harm in return for an injury or wrong, which I guess probably fit the team when they were put together in the comics. But really, honestly, they should have been called the Protectors, right? (laughs) I mean, it's just a cool sounding name. Like the word is not... even in the comics, it was never quite the right word if we were just going by the actual definition of an Avenger anyway. So uh, I like that it came from Carol. Yeah. Steve is never called an Avenger in the movie. I know the title of the movie is Captain America, the first Avenger. But if everybody remembers why it was called that, that's because it needed to have that subtitle so they could drop the words Captain America when it was playing in certain international markets. Because in certain markets, it was just the first Avenger. It wasn't even called Captain America. So he was never called an Avenger in the story. 
And so the, the titles of the movies aren't part of, in my view anyway, it's not necessarily part of the canon of the story. So there was nobody who was actually <laughs> called an Avenger. Consequently, Steve is the first Avenger because he was around when the team yeah. was, you know, but he was the first one around of anybody who eventually became an Avenger, although technically Thor is the first Avenger. Um, but uh, for Captain Marvel, it should come from her. Like if, if, why is Nick Fury going to settle on this name? Well, if it comes from the first superhero that he ever met, that makes complete sense. And to HT's point, like if you are mad about something like that, your life must be <laughs> awesome or terrible. Uh, but either way, you need to find better things to get mad about. Yeah. Um, you know, let, let's move on. Let's talk about the end credit scene. I'm talking about the mid credit scene, which, by the way, should have played it as the end credit scene, in my opinion. Like, I feel like Marvel is starting to put the more important credit scene in the mid slot because oh, they yeah. ju they're just worried that people are not going to stick around to the very end of the credits, and then they put the jokey one at the the very yeah. end. And people still don't. People bailed last night yeah. after the mid after the mid. They're right after the mid credit scene during the Thursday night showing last night. I saw a bunch of people get up and leave. Yeah, and not so just like that. The... I saw it at the first press screening here in yeah. Los Angeles. And I think probably half of the theater. This is you know movie critics and press that cover yeah. these movies for a living they've seen every single one of these probably and half yeah. of them left the, the i don't know it's only been 11 years though you can't expect people to pick up on a pattern okay let's talk about the mid credit scene uh this is a scene that was shot by the russo brothers during the production mm -hmm. of uh, infinity war or endgame i confirmed that with the kevin feige that'll be in my interview running next week uh which has a lot of spoilers so i haven't published it today yet um and um Brad, you wrote up the scene for the site. What happens in the scene? Yeah, the scene is is literally a direct setup for Avengers Endgame. Uh, it, it begins with a close-up on the uh, beeper that or pager that Nick Fury was given by Captain Marvel as a way to call her just in case of emergencies only. Um, but it's uh, it suddenly turns off, and as we pan away from it, we see uh, the surviving Avengers from the end of Infinity War at Avengers HQ looking at all of their holographic interfaces about the death toll and people that are gone and missing after the snap of Thanos at the end of Infinity War. Um, and as Bruce Banner and Natasha Romanoff and Steve Rogers are all looking at this information, uh, Rhodey comes in and tells them that, that that thing and whatever it was doing, it just stopped doing it. So they go to take a look at it, and they they we see that they've hooked it up to like a power source so they can keep it running. But they don't know where the signal uh, that's coming from it is being sent out or what uh, purpose it served. But they know that Fury had it, and it was something that was important to him. Uh, and Black Widow um, Natasha says, "I want to know, you know, uh, who's on the other end of that thing." And as soon as they turn around, uh, Captain Marvel is right there in front of them in HQ, and she just she only says, "Where's Fury?" And she looks very concerned. <laughs> that appearance almost <laughs> plays as a joke for me. I feel like it was not uh, shot 100% correctly. Like, I don't know. It plays almost comedically, her appearance. Like, it's like, like almost like a, I guess, like, you know, a cartoon of some, you know, the Roadrunner running into the scene, that kind of thing. Um, do we, uh, Sean, do we know what those power sources that are powering the the pager are no no i, mean, I don't okay. know what any of that stuff is yeah um do, uh we do know what happens after this though apparently because there was a screening of some footage from avengers endgame mm -hmm. that happened during the investors conference yesterday uh brad what do we know about that yes uh the the footage that played during that shareholders meeting uh actually feels like it's basically a continuation of what would happen after Captain Marvel arrives at Avengers HQ, or at least a, f a few minutes after she's been there for a while and they get their introductions out of the way, uh, because all of those same characters are in Avengers HQ and they're talking about what to do, and Captain Marvel is very much gung-ho about, okay, well, let's go find Thanos and kill him. And uh, Nebula is there, which is a change from the, the scene that we saw at the end of the movie. So she's somehow come back from space and has found uh, the Avengers. And she tells them that she thinks she knows where Thanos is. It's this place called, quote, the Garden, which is where we saw Thanos at the end of Infinity War, uh, sort of as his calm celebration after victory. Uh, and so they basically decide to go do that uh, with Captain Marvel. 
Uh, and uh, we get to see a little bit of Brie Larson's cockiness, it seems, as, as far as being a superhero, because uh, Bruce Banner asked them, what is like, what's going to be different this time? We, you know, like, basically, we just got our asses kicked. And she says, well, you've got me this time. So it <laughs> seems like Captain Marvel is going to be a pretty key part in uh, them defeating Thanos this time. But uh, it's interesting that they, you know, reveal the scene like that to Disney shareholders so early because it seems like kind of a big deal for them all to get back together and just immediately go out to kill Thanos. So we've already heard that the marketing for Avengers Endgame will very much be mostly footage from the first act of the movie. So if this is something that happens pretty early on in the movie, there's a lot that we still don't know about what will happen in the second and third acts of Avengers Endgame. So whatever happens with Thanos in this rematch uh, clearly doesn't fix everything like we're, we're thinking it might. You know, another thing I want to bring up is, and I have an article about this on the site today, I'll link it in show notes, but one of the things I asked Kevin Feige is a lot of people are asking if Nick Fury had this pager for the last, you know, 20-something years, why didn't he use it uh, to call Captain Marvel when, you know, a big hole opened up in the sky and aliens attacked New York City? So I asked Feige this, and uh, you can read the quotes in, in, in in the piece, but basically he says that, one thing she does say there has to be a real emergency and this is uh, obviously alludes to like this is just an attack on one city and you know they have the avengers they think they can handle it uh, the other thing is i would say that you how do you know that he's never hit it how do you know that he's never pushed it before we've never seen him push it before that doesn't mean that he never did so i mean that could allude to maybe there is a captain marvel sequel here that there was a time where he had to push it and she came to earth after this, but before the Avengers. Uh, True. Is is that a possibility? Do you think Sean? I think so. I mean, Fury, Fury's scale of emergencies, like his pyramid of <laughs> emergency situations is different than what most of ours would be. So yeah, I mean, especially at the time of the Avengers, the Chitauri invasion, he knew he put together a response team. He believed they would come together. And I think if they lost to the battle of New York, he would have hit the button on the pager, but yeah. they didn't lose. So you could certainly say that Fury had every excuse to hit the button during the Chitauri invasion or during Sokovia with Ultron. And it's it's a valid point, but ultimately he wasn't wrong uh, to not use the pager because the Avengers won. And we also know that it takes Captain Marvel a little bit of time to get back because this was not two seconds that, that it took for uh, Captain Marvel to answer the page anyway. I mean, this is relatively soon after Infinity War because we still see Steve's got his beard. He's not clean-shaven like he was in the first Endgame trailer. And we can see we can still see the death toll or the missing toll just shooting up by the second as they're all watching those graphics on uh, the screen at Avengers Compound. So this is still relatively soon, but it's not immediate. They would have taken them time to find the pager, get back to Avengers Compound, and then bypass the battery and whatever else they were doing with their pseudo-techie science stuff. Um, but yeah, like he, there could have been a different time where he hit the pager, or maybe yeah. he hit the pager for New York and Sokovia, and then by the time she showed up, he was like, never mind. <laughs> like, we got it. So that could have happened. But yeah, there could totally be a time between 1995 and 2012-ish for the Avengers, or even before Iron Man in 2008, where uh, Carol did come back for something. Because I do think there, there's a chance the second movie happens uh, between, not necessarily in the modern day, because there's also a confrontation that Ronan teases with Carol Danvers, and we wouldn't see that post-2014 because he dies in 2014 in the first Guardians of the Galaxy. So if they're ever going to pay off that confrontation between Carol and Ronan, then there would be another Captain Marvel story set between 1995 and 2014. H.J., what would you like to see in the sequel? Um, I don't know. I... I think I wanted them, them to go cosmic, though, um, because we haven't really seen a lot of Captain Marvel's sort of cosmic potential, except for like the first, the beginning scenes. So I would like to see Captain Marvel 2 or whatever the sequel be, will be called go a little bit more along the lines of like Guardians or Thor in terms of just like the, the cosmic realm. Brad, how about you? Uh, I think that the thread that they set up in this one with Ronan is interesting, even though Ronan as a character isn't a particularly great villain. But we do know that at some point he has to be banished by the Kree and uh, sent off to whatever tomb is that he gets recovered 
in uh, and to come back uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy. So something else has to happen between him and presumably Captain Marvel since he says they're going to come back for her. Um, so I, I would I'd be interested in seeing how that played out. But uh, yeah, I, I think maybe jumping ahead to the early 2000s by the time Captain Marvel gets made would be fun because by that point we're looking at a time period that's 20 years old. Uh, so that, you know, it'll be another oh, that's fun weird to think of. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. And so it'll be another fun, you know, kind of nostalgic uh, sort of movie if uh, she gets to come back to Earth or something like that. But I did I did appreciate the cosmic side of this movie much more than the Earth stuff. So I w- whatever happens, I hope they don't lose that weirder side of the movie, because I think that's what helps make it stand out from the, the rest of the usual Marvel origin stories. Yeah, we should also say that Jan Rog, Jude Law's character is kept alive at the end of this movie which and sent back home to as a warning which seems like a bad idea to me right like i'm like carol that does not seem like a good idea why not the element of surprise go there and surprise them (laughs) but uh so i would assume that you'd be a part of the sequel as well uh sean do you have any ideas for the sequel i lean more towards cosmic i mean they've teased the confrontation with the kree so i i would rather just see her though to that point though we saw plenty of earth in this movie we're going to see her on earth in avengers movies going forward not just endgame but presumably in the new the new avengers team that that comes out of avengers endgame so uh there's going to be plenty of opportunities for carol on earth and she fits there just fine but i also want to see the cosmic stuff so i would like to see her take the fight to the kree because that's what was brought up you know that's what was teased at the end of this one I don't I'm not super excited about another confrontation with Ronan because I know it won't really be the end of his arc anyway. And it won't be like she's going to she's going to deliver the final killing blow to Ronan because we know that happens in Guardians of the Galaxy. So I'd really like to see it escalate now to a battle with the Supreme Intelligence and more of the Kree. And because I want to see the Kree suit, I want to see the Supreme Intelligence in its comic book form. And I like that. Uh, there's a line from Jan Rog that actually leaves it open because it's if you don't know in the comics, it's just a giant floating head. It's like Zordon from Power Rangers with a bunch of tentacles. It's, I, I like it. But anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's what I want to see in this. But there's that line from Jan Rog where he says no one gets to see the supreme intelligence in its true form. Well, that means it has a true form. So that I still hope to actually be able to see that. And a Captain Marvel sequel is probably the best uh, the best spot for it. And she clearly still has unresolved issues with the Kree. So I feel like the story is kind of uh, begging to go there. But long term, I would love to see Captain Marvel doing what she's done more recently in the comics, where she's heading up a, a space station and an alpha flight, like in orbiting above Earth and doing and just kind of leading the leading the charge in the the cosmic superheroing in, in Marvel Comics. So I'd love to see her do that in the MCU. I know we've gone way longer than expected, but I have two more things I wanted to touch on. The first That's which, totally my fault because you had me on the show and I am not brief. <laughs> so. No, it, it's fine. I think people will enjoy all this Marvel nerdiness. Um, the Captain Marvel at the end of this movie is unchained. We get to see the full extent of her powers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the full extent of those powers are kind of demonstrated in that last sequence with Ronan where she basically takes out a Kree warship. Uh, I would consider like... It's almost as if you took out a Star Destroyer with an X-Wing, which would be ridiculous. But um, it's a, sorry, bad Last Jedi joke. Um, (laughs) And um, no, but like it does seem like she's like super powerful, like almost too powerful. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did ask Kevin Feige about this, and he basically said that the point of that se- sequence was to see her full, you know, her full power, her full abilities. Um, but, you know, if in future installments, we're, we're going to start to see her limitations, um, which I think is kind of interesting because you, you, she does have to have some kind of limitations here. So I'm wondering with you guys, like, are, are you a bit worried that she's like too all, all powerful? Like, I feel like if the Battle of New York was happening with her, she would she could end it in like five seconds. I think she's certainly powerful, but I don't think she's all powerful. I think like the closest equivalent could be um, like in the DC world, Superman, for example, like he is the heavy hitter of the team. He is like incredibly powerful and again, could like level cities with just like one look. And um, well, I think Captain Marvel has that potential as well. But they would never kill Superman in a movie. That'd be ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> are you saying that we're going to kill Captain Marvel? <laughs> no, I'm just saying he's, he's not like he's he's so all powerful. There's nothing that could kill him. 
right? Like, oh, why yeah. would they ever I, do that in a movie? That would be that would be stupid. I'm yeah. sure maybe they'll find Captain <laughs> Unless Marvel's there was a Kryptonite. spear that literally anyone else could have used. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure like maybe maybe they'll introduce something that's the equivalent of what Superman has as a weakness or limitations, like you said. But I don't think for now that she is incredibly all powerful. I think maybe like she has trouble controlling those powers still, too. So we might see more of like how she learns to do that. But um, for now, I'm not too worried about like the strength of her powers. Brad, are you at all worried about the power creep going on here? No, I, I think, you know, at, at this point, you know, in Marvel, we trust. Uh, they know what they're yeah. doing. They're not going to create a character that's uh, completely invulnerable. You know, um, obviously, she's still, you know, a a, a person or, you know, a, a, a half Cree, half person. Uh, so she, she's, she's bound still to have... She's vul- vulnerable, right? Of some kind. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I, there was actually uh, recently when Kevin Feige was doing the press round uh, for Captain Marvel, he said he's like, he's like, no character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is invulnerable. So they 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 have some. He, she has some kind of weakness. She she's not necessarily all powerful, even though she is obviously extremely powerful. Uh, so yeah, it, I, I'm not worried about that that whatsoever. Sean, is there any like weak obvious weaknesses in the comics that could be used in future movies? Uh, not that I really know of. I mean, the only thing that they could, but they can change rules in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they can set limits on these things. Like, yeah, she is completely invulnerable in those moments where she's in what people call binary mode for Captain Marvel because the powers are similar to when Carol Danvers was a character called binary. So like she's glowing and flies and just is completely indestructible in those moments. Uh, She wasn't in that state for very long in the movie. So we don't know when we we can't presume that she can hold that form for a very long stretch of time. So perhaps there's a limit on how long she can do that and how often she might be able to do that. Uh, that would be one limit you could put on her or you could establish something that might be able to because there's I mean, the energy signature comes from the Tesseract. So if the Space Stone survives Avengers Endgame, maybe that's something that could be a weakness for her. You can always introduce weaknesses. Like I go back to uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. And when Vision was introduced, he seemed completely invulnerable. He seemed completely insto- unstoppable. He was going to be the Superman of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then the Russos manipulated his emotional vulnerability in Captain America Civil War and again in Avengers Infinity War and showed that you could get to him and ultimately prove that he's physically vulnerable by tapping into his emotional vulnerabilities. So there are always ways to create stakes for heroes, even ones that are all powerful, like Superman or like Captain Marvel, because sometimes maybe you don't get to them physically. You get to them emotionally by attacking someone that they love or someone that they care about. You can always do those kinds of things. Hulk was the strongest one there was until Thanos whooped his ass in Avengers Infinity War. So the 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 pecking order of who's all powerful and who can and can't be beaten, that's always subject to change just based on the next script that's coming down, uh, you know, that's coming down in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just like it's always been in comics. Okay, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the soundtrack. This movie uses 90s uh, you know, hits as the soundtrack. Um Half of which I like, half of which I feel like are a little bit more on the nose, including um, the one that you pointed out in the Slack channel. Do you want to talk about that, Brad? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I like the idea of, obviously, a, a Marvel movie being set in the 90s making use of a great 90s soundtrack. But to me, there were a few needle drops in this movie that just felt really forced and uh, almost in the same way that Suicide Squad soundtrack felt really forced, like they were trying really hard to be Guardians of the Galaxy, and the one that really stood out to me in this one that frustrated me was the use of No Doubt's "Just a Girl" during mm-hmm. that climactic fight sequence between Captain Marvel and the Kree, because the song comes out of nowhere, and even though it's this energizing, uh, you know, badass girl song for her to fight to, it feels really inorganic in the way that it appears and what's so frustrating to me about that is there's a jukebox in that room you could have easily like tossed a cree into yeah. that jukebox well, and well they like, do ah. like seconds later they toss a cree yeah. into that jukebox really right yeah. and i was i was like wait a minute this song is 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 not playing within the 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 realm of the movie itself why wouldn't you just do that so that it makes sense for it because most of the other songs are playing from radios or you know or something like that so it's just it, it seems weird. So th- that that needle drop on top of also the the use of "Come as You Are" when she goes uh, gets brought back into Supreme Intelligence so that Yon Rog can try to brainwash her into coming back on their side uh, doesn't make logistical sense because 
she shouldn't have come as you are in her head because she left Earth in 1989 and that song didn't debut until 1992. So unless the rest of the Cree have been jamming out to Nirvana somehow <laughs> since then, there's no reason for that song to be part of that sequence. You know, this is such a nitpick, but when you said this in the Slack, I was like, oh my God, you're right. Like, this is this is all a house of cards that's falling down. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that does bother me now that I know that, though. I'm like, what is the reason for having that song in the background of that scene other than it being cool? Like, what is the story reason? Uh, Sean, can you can you come up with anything? I mean, you could say the lyrics have something you can, yeah. can tie into some of the things that Carol is thinking and dealing with in the movie. So it has some emotional resonance, but it's a valid point that why would it be part of why would the Supreme? Because this is all a show that's being put on by the Supreme Intelligence that's in conjunction with Carol's own mind and her own subconscious. So why would it be in her subconscious and why would it be something that the Supreme Intelligence the Supreme Intelligence would play with. And the truth is it wouldn't be. Um, the only thing is, you know, maybe some in a scene that's cut, she overhears the song while they were hanging out at Maria Rambo's house for a bit. And she liked it. I really don't know. Um, <laughs> there's not really a good yeah. story yeah, reason for it to be there. Yeah, but was... I actually was bothered more by the other one that Brad brought up the, the just a girl needle drop. Cause the score was feeling, it felt like it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it just stops. So just from the sound mixing perspective, like it just felt jarring to be like, why have we switched to this? And it would have felt better if there was a visual cue of, yeah, somebody gets knocked into a jukebox or one of the kids scrolls starts playing music or something, whatever. If, if it was actually playing in the environment, it would have felt much more natural. That was the needle drop that bugged me the most. The rest I was OK with. And even the Nirvana song I was fine with, even though, yeah, it doesn't make sense for it to be there. I, li I just like the song, so I didn't care. <laughs> I gave it a pass. I in my interview with the directors, it's it's funny they were so like it felt uh, maybe it doesn't read this way, but it felt like they were kind of self-deprecating and not like wanting to take credit for you know when I was praising them. And one time I brought up the soundtrack, and um, it seemed like they knew that people didn't like this this song choice in particular because like Anna even like um, she said that. Uh, that that song took like they tried 200 songs in that place for that song and even though that was like one of the first ones to be suggested because it was an, the most obvious choice she said um but they came around came back around to that song so it, it seems clear to me that she they know that it is not being received well yeah i that was also my my least favorite needle drop too just because it feels very atonal with the rest of the film where like the soundtrack, like the 90s soundtrack exists, but it doesn't feel quite as essential as the soundtrack does in Guardians of the, Guard of the Galaxy, for example. So having the needle drop at this very pivotal like fight scene feels just like out of nowhere. So I think we covered it all, right? Like uh, is um, Sean, is there any nerdy Easter eggs that us, uh, you know, normal people? Us non, you know, uh, people who, uh, how many times have you watched Infinity War at this point? Infinity War? Oh, yeah. sh I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Dozens of times? Yeah, enough, yeah. enough to not be uh, able to count it anymore. Us people who know how many times we've watched Infinity War might have not noticed. Is there anything, any references or Easter eggs that would I mean, be interesting? There's some stuff. I mean, I, off the top of my head, I'm I'm blanking, but. Well, just, I mean, Project Pegasus, like, the base they're in is the base from the first Avengers movie. Like, I, I don't think a lot, of, a lot of people are realizing that. Like, they're driving through. It's, I don't think it's literally the same location that they shot at, but it's that's why they're going through an underground tunnel. They pull into an area that kind of looks like uh, kind of looks like the area where you see uh, Maria Hill confront the mind-controlled Hawkeye and, and Loki in the back of the truck. I mean, because... If you didn't know ahead of time, like you should have known from the very start that the whole thing was building towards the Tesseract because Project Pegasus was the Tesseract. Um, Wendy Lawson is a com it's a valid name because it's Wendell Lawson is Marvel's Earth based secret identity. So there oh. was like so they kind of incorporated that name as they did a little bit of the, the gender swap. Uh, there's I know there's other things, too. There's another one that stood out to me when I watched it last night, but I'm totally not remembering it. But. I guess that's an excuse for people to listen to my podcast. I don't know, yes. but I'll probably circle back yeah. to it. And Sean, uh, yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff in there. And Sean, where can people find your podcast? 
So you can just go to iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Uh, Marvel Studios News is the main Marvel show that I do. And then I also do writing on SuperheroNews.com. And I also host a YouTube channel for Superhero News. So that's YouTube.com slash Superhero News. So you can find me in those places. And the Twitter for the Marvel show, Marvel Studios News, they won't let you have a Twitter handle long enough to incorporate that. So it's at Marvel Newscast. Ah, so HT, where can we find more of your work? You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. And Brad, where can I find you? Always at the SlashFilm.com, and I also have uh, my own podcast called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X. You can check it out on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. You can find me at SlashFilm on all social media. You can find links to the, the stories you mentioned on today's podcast on SlashFilm.com and in the show notes. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. Did we miss any like insane Marvel Easter eggs? Uh, send us an email. Uh, please head on over to our iTunes page. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. <laughs>